Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you are likely familiar with this story and familiarity with Jesus' stories, I think, can be unhelpful for us sometimes. We can be dulled to the radical call that is embedded in them and we can even give up trying to really make sense of them. But I invite you to hear this story afresh this morning. If you can, try to consider how a first century Palestinian might have reacted to it. Because this is a truly scandalous story. Now, it's good at the outset to remind ourselves that Jesus is telling a made-up story. Okay, He's not recounting actual historical events here. And this is important because it means Jesus is in utter control of the content of this story. The details he has chosen to include here are included quite deliberately. Nothing he wanted in was left out and no detail omitted was deemed necessary to be included by Jesus. And he's telling this story with a purpose, not simply to entertain his listeners. He wanted to disrupt deeply held and virtually universally held assumptions uh, that his audience had. And indeed, I think all people have. As with so many of Jesus' stories, he begins with a fairly conventional kind of trajectory uh, and then as he goes along, there's a kind of T-bone turn at the end and he has an outrageous twist in the tail. So outrageous that often he risks losing his audience altogether because they almost can't make sense of what he's saying. And interestingly, embedded in the story itself is this pattern in his audience. Um, that is to say, the characters in the story themselves illustrate precisely the kind of reaction that his first listeners would have had, and indeed many of us would have as we hear this story. The hired labourers knew what was expected. They understood the way things were meant to work and everything was proceeding like normal until the end. And then the landowner pays the workers who worked for only the last hour of the day a full day's wage. Now that's the first scandal. Can you imagine? You've worked one hour and you get paid a full day's wage. Well, these days, I don't know, that possibly could happen, but back in those days, no. That was like more than ten times the going rate of pay. It's unheard of, unthinkable. But perhaps even more scandalous is that he pays the workers who laboured all day precisely the same quantum. That is to say, they get effectively one-tenth of the hourly rate that the first people who got paid were paid. And that is clearly unfair. Fairness is an interesting idea, right? It's a very, I love this word, fungible category. I hope I'm using it correctly. It means you can swap things in and out of it and this kind of thing. Um, if you've grown up with siblings or indeed ever attended school as a child, you'll know, know how important being fair is and just how flexible the concept is as well. We tend not to get nearly so upset about unfairness unless we're on the seemingly negative or disadvantaged side of things. More profoundly than this, we simply never have all the information required to make, make a call as to whether something really is fair or not. 
because fairness has to do with how this thing relates to that thing and dealing with stuff without bias or partiality. But our point of view is always partial. We simply cannot see everything. So we cannot help but make our own assessments and these are effectively our biases and we've all got them and we all use them. In the end, the weight that I give to particular aspects of a story or a scenario of the incomplete picture that I see is my choice. And we are persuaded by numerous influences that we're not even aware of that shape the way we go about that process. Currently on Netflix, there's a very, very good sort of documentary slash drama a little bit, um, and it's quite frightening at the same time, about social media. It's called The Social Dilemma. Write it down, The Social Dilemma. I want you to watch it. <laughs> It'll scare your hair straight, I'll tell you. Uh, it details the way in which social media software engineers write algorithms designed to manipulate people without the person being aware of it. And this is the most powerful of all manipulations because when we're not aware of something, we cannot combat it. Now, this science has become so clever and so targeted precisely because of the immense sample that is available to people who want to tinker in the social media arena. These scientists are now understanding the body's reaction systems and how to trigger certain responses in the brain. They are constantly running real-time experiments using a sample of people over here and trialling this idea and a sample of people over here and trialling that idea and gauging in real time with massive samples of people what kind of reaction they get and how they can tweak it up or tweak it down or broaden it out or narrow it and all this kind of thing. And they can measure the effectiveness of their work so clearly and accurately. They can see exactly how people are being triggered and the form of their reaction and all of that in real time with massive amounts of data. And in my view, I think this is pretty dark stuff. The user of social media believes they are making sovereign choices and has no idea that their brain chemistry is being triggered by particular posts or the way things are configured, even colours and so forth are used. How can we possibly assess what is fair when we are mostly unaware of what is calibrating the scales of our assessment? It's really not something that we should feel confident about in some respects. We need to be very careful about ever doing are daring to use the category of fairness, I think, because really we're not very good at understanding all that's going on. But the thing about this story is generosity has nothing at all to do with fairness. It's not even in the same ballpark, as it were. It's not a transaction at all, generosity. It has nothing to do with what may have happened beforehand and it is not dependent on a particular response from the recipient. It is a relational dynamic that is, in one sense, simply a one-way thing. It comes out of the fullness of the heart. True generosity is an impulse of the heart. The only measure for it is how much the person desires to give. And it's their desire and they can give it. 
Indeed, it's perhaps the most revealing window into the heart of a person or the nature of one person's heart because generosity flows from a heart that cannot contain all the goodness it has within. It flows forth to others um, as certainly as milk on a stove, left on a stove, will boil over, as it were. That's what happens with generosity. It just flows forth to people. And perhaps the deepest miracle is that receiving generosity can actually change the way that we perceive the world. Receiving generosity makes us aware of grace. We experience receiving something which is not connected to what we might have earned or what we might deserve, as it were. And if we allow that generosity to speak to us of the heart of the giver who is giving to us, we might become aware that there is a profound liberty in grace. Rather than shaping our lives in reaction to the demands of those who pay us or indeed those who will make us pay, we have that grace-shaped space to discover what we might actually desire to offer to the world. I want to see if I can explain this by telling you a story about something that happened this week. And I think one of the people watching was involved there. And Gypsy, I hope you're okay about me sharing this story. But a, res- a resident of City West Housing who was uh, living with some illness and so forth died about a week ago. And without going into the details, and frankly I don't know that many of them, um, I want to just highlight how my response to this has changed over time as a consequence of knowing the generosity of the heart of God. See, I received an inquiry from one of the neighbours of this man who had died and asking whether I'd be willing to conduct some kind of prayer service or memorial service for some of the locals who wanted to express their grief and to have the opportunity to say goodbye. Now, once upon a time, I would have immediately become nervous at this phone call. What are people expecting of me? Will I be able to deliver it? Um, what might be the collateral impact on their, the community's view of me or indeed mustard seed or indeed the church or, or God more generally? How's it all going to work? Am I going to be able to do the right thing? Will I satisfy all the things that people are hoping for? But on this occasion, aware as I am of the immense generosity of God I experience in simply being part of this Ultimo Piemont community, I proceeded to enter the experience with an open heart, aware that I would have something to offer in that situation, just as the community would also have something to offer there. The expectation I placed upon myself as a consequence was to enter this experience as fully as I was able and to offer to those gathered the best I had to give, and it was a simple and dignified liturgy. Various neighbours and community members felt comfortable to share a memory. Uh, Somebody read a psalm, and there was even the singing of a hymn by one person, socially distanced. (laughs) Flowers were distributed, and at a key moment, as we recited the Lord's Prayer, they were cast into the harbour. Memories were shared Goodbyes were said, grief was touched together and we were glad of one another being there together. 
And even though I didn't know Andrew, the man who died, and I was only known to a few of those who were gathered and not that well, for that experience we were together as one. And this for me was an experience that flowed out of the generosity of God's heart. That allowed me to enter into that experience generously. There was no mark I was required to achieve. The generosity of God allowed me to be present rather than to be a performer. See, when Jesus tells this scandalous and disruptive story of the workers in the vineyard, he's wanting to open his audience to the vast contrast between the ways of this transactional world and the immense generosity of God. Jesus knows how hard a concept this is to accept, the generosity of God. He writes it into the story in the form of the reaction of the full-day workers and just like the original audience, we also feel the outrage and the unfairness of that situation. And that's okay because, in a sense, that's exactly what we're supposed to feel. But underneath this story is a subtext We can never earn God's love, precisely because love is never, ever earned. It is a sovereign expression of a loving and generous heart. But if we have the faith, we can trust that God really is that ridiculously, almost recklessly generous in love toward us. And we can enjoy that richness and live from it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your ridiculously, almost recklessly generous love toward us. We thank you that it can so transform our experience of everything that we can live and enjoy that richness, no matter our circumstances, to the glory of your name. Amen.